Welcome to the Creative Endeavor Podcast. This is the podcast bringing you inspiring stories from creative professionals from around the world. It's real conversations with real artists, and I'm Andrew Tischler. What a pleasure it is to have your company here once again. In this episode, I've got a real treat. I've got a living legend, an icon joining me. I'm talking to none other than Robert Bateman. Robert Bateman has been on my hero list for many years, practically ever since I first saw his work when I was a young boy. He has really inspired me, and he's inspired millions around the world. Robert Bateman is now 93 years old. He's been painting for decades. In fact, he's been painting ever since he was a small child. His work is incredible. He paints realistic paintings of wildlife, natural scenes, landscapes. But what really strikes me are his paintings of birds. They're some of my favorites. They're just exquisite. I recently picked up a book called Life Sketches, which is a bit of an autobiography by Robert Bateman. And I was so inspired by his life story, his upbringing, what inspired him in those formative years, but also some of the adventures that he's had. And I latched on to this one particular story of Grizzly Torque, this land roving machine that he took with his friend all across Africa and across the world, really, taking an inspiration and touching base with cultures around the world and making little sketches as he went along. There's a few things I wanted to ask him about that in particular from what I was reading in this incredible autobiography, Life Sketches. But I also wanted to hear about some of the things that were really standouts amongst Robert's life and career. There's too much here that I I can sum up in the introduction. You're really just going to have to listen to this episode yourself and go through it. It is really one to inspire, but I'm going to apologize in advance, okay? I'm talking to Robert Bateman. So forgive me for being a little bit nervous here. I was shaking like a leaf and I was asking some really silly questions here and there. But when you're talking to your hero and you're coming face to face with somebody who has meant so much to you growing up, then hopefully you can forgive me for that. I I think I did okay, but again, the nerves did get the better of me. But I thank you so much for being here and for catching this episode. Now, look, if you want to see the video version of this episode, and I really highly suggest you do, it's got some visuals in there of his paintings, some of the things that we were talking about through this conversation. You get to see Robert in his studio. I'm talking to him from my studio. You can only find the video version at Tish Academy. Simply click that link that accompanies this show or go to tish.academy. Yes, that's a URL. Go to T-I-S-C-H dot academy and you'll find in the podcast library the full video version of this episode. It, it It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed this. I hope you will too. So without further ado, here he is, the man, the myth, the legend, Robert Bateman in the creative endeavor. Well, 
Robert Bateman, welcome to the Creative Endeavor podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. You have a wonderful, a beautiful country. We do too in Canada, but uh, yours is kind of compressed beauty. <laughs> it is. It's a small country, <laughs> but they pack a lot of scenery into such a small area. They certainly do. Yeah, sure do. Have you been to New Zealand? Oh, yes. Yeah. What What uh, were some of the highlights for you? Once I, I'd have to check. Uh, I keep forgetting my ancient history now, but uh, been there at least once and uh australia too but that's of course totally different than new zealand absolutely yeah also i mean they're, at all. <laughs> they're pretty close to each other um but but very very different environments um i i'm just blown away by your work i want to give you just a little bit of a, a of a backstory here uh when i first started my youtube channel I think I was within my first year, I put out a video because somebody inspired me to make a video about getting unstuck and overcoming artist block as an artist. And I I have always gravitated towards heroes, my, my art heroes. And so on that list, I had two art heroes that had passed, but one that was still living and, you know, a, a living legend, as I put it in that video. And I put, it was you. I put you up there as one of my art heroes because of the difference and the contribution that you've made towards art. So to have this opportunity. Who was the other one? Just to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but. Well, the, the other ones actually, admittedly, now I'm almost slightly ashamed because I put them up for two different reasons. One of them I'm not, but one of them since after going into a little bit more of the backstory and the history I am. But one of them was Carl Rungus, who is the German born American oh, yeah. painter. You know, yeah. I'm a big fan of Rungus. But the other one from a business standpoint, because as we know, art's a business, I put up there Thomas Kincaid, not because I liked his art, I am not a fan of his art, but I just thought he did something extraordinary with his art business and some lessons could have been learned. He's a there. marketing machine. A marketing machine, absolutely. Um, I realized after listening to the book uh, that Eric Kusky put out uh, called The Billion or the Billion Dollar Painter. And that there was some uh, there was some shady stuff going on in the background, but um, I don't want to judge the, uh, Thomas Kincaid for that. I, I think he was he he was definitely caught up in that marketing machine. Mm -hmm. But uh, to to be talking to you now, it's just awesome. Um, now, having gone through your book, Life Sketches, let's go back to the beginning, Robert, if we can. I was really taken with those sketches that you were making those first encounters that you had where this, it's almost like a light bulb went off for you, where you were sketching from nature, the birds and stuff in the ravine. Uh, can you take us back to that moment? Can, can you take us back to that moment of what that was like for you? And and that aha moment of when you first realized, oh shoot, I, I wanna do this. Well, I, I always knew I wanted to do art. I never, in my wildest dreams thought I would make a living at it. And so therefore I went into uh, school teaching, which I, I always enjoyed being a teacher. I, even when I was um, a teenager, I was teaching at the Royal Ontario Museum, teaching little kids about nature and how to identify things and uh, and and enjoying this specificity. Uh, you know, how do you tell a red-shouldered hawk from a red-tailed hawk or a meadow mouse from a deer mouse, etc., and 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 so, um, but but at the same time, I almost 
on a different wavelength, I was an artist and uh, I was paying attention to what was au courant in art and um, was getting more and more, first of all, impressionist and post-impressionist, then finally into abstract and abstract or cubism and then abstract expressionism. And I, I wanted to be an artist, so I followed along in all those things. And I found it wasn't, um, it wasn't satisfying what was really me, which was a naturalist, doing big gobs of paint, just splashing them all over the place. I, I still admire greatly the, the giants of abstract expressionism, like uh, Franz Klein and Clifford Still and those, those big, the big New York school. But it was only around for 10 years or so. And it was a period as in, as all kinds of things have been periods and fashions and come, come and go. I think they still hold up. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't being true to me where I was caring about the specificity. And so I sort of had this um, road to Damascus, if you know your Bible or some people might know their Bible where St. Paul was uh, going to tech, uh, collect tax. He wasn't a saint then. His name was Saul. He was going to collect taxes in Damascus. And uh, suddenly, uh, uh, I guess it was Christ appeared to him and he fell off his horse uh, and went into a kind of a fit. <clears throat> and then he became a missionary, the first real missionary of Christianity. And I fell off my horse, my abstract horse, mm -hmm. uh, when I saw the show by Andrew Wyeth. Um, and I, uh, well, I was, I was about 27 years old and, uh, I said, oh, my goodness, it's possible to do things that are real in your own world. Doesn't have to be abstract and that's, that's okay. And, uh, it took me about a year to evolve out of my abstract snobbery and start doing coming back to realism again. But that was decades ago. And I I don't think you have to keep evolving and changing styles and all that kind of thing. Just do what's true to you. That's that's good advice. Um, what was it about Wyeth? I mean, I, I'm so taken with Wyeth's work and I, I see a few paintings where I get a, a Wyeth-esque kind of, I, I see that coming through. Don't get me wrong, you're definitely you. But what was it in particular about his work that you you found inspiring? Well, that he cared about the, the particularity of the world around him. He, um, I mean, one of my favorite Wyeth paintings, it was, uh, I think, painted shortly after his, his uh, the great N.C. Wyeth had died. It's called The Trodden Weed. And it's looking down into a, a, a boat a square meter or a little bit more of meadow and coming in from the top of the painting is a pair of boots crushing what I think is a dead goldenrod is fallen down and his foot is on. I'd never seen a painting like that before of looking down into a, a square meter of meadow with boots coming in from the top. No one had ever done that before. Yeah. It was realism, but uh, it had not been done during the Renaissance or any any other period. So he was a true innovator, but painting the world uh, that he saw right around him. And I thought, that's for me.
didn't Andrew Wyeth say something about um, that you should be able to paint, or he said he could be able to paint a lifetime from his own backyard, just from what was right there? Uh, something about that struck me. I'm not. Uh, that sounds right. I don't recall uh, hearing or reading that quote, but that's that's what he did. Yeah, he just painted his own world, and he had two two worlds because of where he went in the summer. Mm -hmm. um, he he went to Cushing, Maine, in the summer, and Chadsford, Pennsylvania, was where he lived most of the time. Mm. And uh, and those are the two worlds he painted, and that to me makes total sense. I think every artist should paint their where they come from, paint their world and not try to do some fantasy thing from somewhere, unless you're Salvador Dali. Can you tell me about the beginnings of your journey and that transition that you made into professional art? What was that like? Well, I'm not sure that uh, there, there wasn't any, I had never had a desire to be professional artist. Um, I, as uh, you may or may not have read, I used to do these paintings um, and uh, I, if somebody liked them, I gave them to them because I, I had my job as a, my day job was a, a high school teacher. I figured I was well paid, if not overpaid as a teacher, just to go down and, and talk to kids. And I really enjoyed that. And so um, I, I did these paintings and either my mother gave them away to her friends or I gave them away, away to my friends. And, um, but then I gradually, uh, uh, it sort of dawned on me that maybe I should leave teaching. I just didn't have time to teach anymore because there's so much demand for my art. And uh, and then um, various dealers started selling my art. I had a, a dealer in New York City and and also in Toronto, and um, and they would they would sell my art and put their commission on top of it and so on. And I don't. Uh, it, it sounds like I'm being a hypocrite or, or that you can't believe what I'm saying, but I didn't pay attention to it. I said, I, I've, I've done the art. If you find somebody who likes, likes it, then you can, uh, you know, charge them for it and you take your commission. And um, at, at any rate, I've, I've never had, uh, I've always been kind of spoiled about money. I think I was an overpaid teacher and now I'm an overpaid artist. And and so I'm not out there uh, trying to find more money. I've got I got plenty. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And I do want to get a little bit into you know some of the art business side of things, uh, particularly yeah. when it comes uh, to you know any of the younger people that are listening to this right now who are who are also inspired by your work. Uh, and I, I I would just I'd love to just hit on a couple of those points. Um, there, there is something though that I wanted to touch on, which I, I find kind of interesting, which is where does where does the art come from? So still a little bit in, in very much at the beginning of your journey here. You, you mentioned in your book that you couldn't trace any of that artistic lineage. Have you ever come across this or been talking to people? You know that balance between is it talent or is it hard work? Where where do you think that came from? Because it, from from what I read, it, it didn't seem like you could trace it. It was nothing genetic that came it's, through. It's a it's a total mystery. Uh, my dad was um, an engineer and worked for Canadian General Electric, 
um, all of his career. Um, and mom didn't do art. Uh, I uh, my mom my mom's mom painted <laughs> pansies on a tin plate once. <laughs> That's the only art I can find if I start looking through my ancestry. Um, I I had an uncle, but he he wasn't a blood relative at all. He was a, a wonderful Englishman. Bill Sennett was his name. Um, who married my mom's sister, uh, Elsie. And, and he was a, a wonderful artist. He worked at uh, Eaton's, which is a big department store uh, as their artist in Toronto. And, uh, but, that, but he's not connected at all by blood. I just, he was a, a, a relative I admired. So I, I have no idea, it, it just popped up. Uh, however, um, all of uh, all of my kids who bear my genes seem to now be fairly talented, but um, only one of them, my uh, son Alan, from uh, my first marriage to, to Suzanne, is a, a full-time artist. That's he um, he's never had an, another employer. He just has done art, and he uh, <clears throat> he has a, a, a kind of a group of patrons that support. Otherwise, um, they're they're all talented, but Alan is the only one that is really um, full time, and me. Robert, you're known for this amazing realistic style. It's almost very signature. It's very recognizable. Can you tell me what that path was like for you to end up finding your style? Well, it it, it was fairly sudden. It wasn't so much an evolution. Um, um, I think I've already said when I was a, a teenager, I painted in a realistic style. Mm -hmm. And then it was kind of pointed out to me um, that that wasn't real art. That was mere illustration. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I uh, uh, totally aside and not really important, I happened by happenstance of history to get in with a group of singing folk songs. Um, and, um, I, I learned to play the guitar. I can play almost anything as long as it's in the key of D and, but pretty well, always folk songs. There's one, uh, uh called, uh, I realize I'm not necessarily talking to an audience that would know American folk songs on top of old Smokey, uh, the blue tailed fly, um, which is a very racist song, by the way, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, so I can play those if I ha happen to have, have a guitar here, I could perform it for you, perform them for you. I am very good at memorizing words for some reason, including um, a lot of poetry, which I've memorized, which I could recite for you if we run out of things to talk about. Um, but, uh, and so um, I, I am, that's the one aspect to me is this, uh, guitar playing, but um, at this, it, with this group that used to get together, there were, by a fluke of fate, people from the Ontario College of Art, uh, by, I mean, staff uh, who were teachers at the Ontario College of Art. And uh, the party line at the Ontario College of Art was moving more and more toward non-objective abstract and non-objective art, and definitely not realism. And um, 
and so I was influenced by them and uh, I became more and more abstract influenced by this folk singing group um, and also I was reading um, art art in America and art news magazines and and trying to keep up and be uh, as I said au courant uh, what's what's going on in the world um, until this road to Damascus with Andrew Wyeth. And I found that was what was true to me, not trying to be up, up to date with what was the latest. And now the, now, now the most irrelevant question to ask is what's new? Mm. Nothing's new and everything is new. I mean, what's in long hair, short hair, long skirts, short skirts, what's new Vivaldi, Bach or the Beatles or and I, I can't name any uh, current uh, rock groups everything we're it's it's like uh, and um, I like to repeat this analogy because because I think I'm the one that thought it up and I think it's a good one it's like the history of culture certainly in the western world has been like a river flowing along and you you couldn't have had um Rococo without having had Baroque first. And then and then one, one followed along after the other, like barges going down a stream. The stream is over. There's now no stream. There's now no direction. We're in a delta. And a delta is a very interesting place to be, but w which way is the ocean? Uh, it's cross currents and everything is, and, and in fact, the delta is a far more interesting place than just going along in a stream. and But that's where we are, and we always will be, unless we could somehow turn off all television and all media and all communication. But now communication is just so absolute everywhere. Something comes out, and the whole world knows about it 10 minutes later. Yeah. And it, I can't see it ever being different from that, unless there's a calamity. And how... how how do you think that's made a difference to the artists working today that connectivity and that instantaneous it's nature? been liberating it's 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 been very liberating for the artists today they can um you can do whatever you want and it's valid it's yeah. it's it's just fine if you if all you ever did was nudes or all you ever did was um as like mark mark rothko re, re evolved into doing empty rectangles of color. And that's all you ever do, that's valid. And I suppose it does make it easier with being global now to find your audience, regardless of what you want to do. Well, yeah, yeah. If, if your goal in life is to find an audience, you're kind of not barking up a tree that's true to yourself. Right. You want to be, uh, you want to be famous. And I've heard somebody say that in the, um, I think it was Andy Warhol said, in the future, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> and that's, uh, that's kind of futile. <laughs> so that, uh, having a goal in life to be famous for 15 minutes is, is a pretty small goal. Uh, so I think just uh, expressing yourself what is true to you and that should be your goal in life, not to be famous. And so maintaining the sense of self, uh, being true 
to yourself in that moment, that road to Damascus moment, did that help you kind of weather any criticism that would have come your way? Um, I mean, there, there's all sorts today, but I, I, I do recall because my father's a wildlife artist and it's still working today. And this was always something that came up about, you know, using photographic reference versus, you know, not using photographic reference. So when you, when you found your style and, and, you know, you're, you're influenced by images here and sources there and plain air, did it, did it make it a little bit easier to just go, you know what, I, I'm doing it this way and that's okay. You know, criticism is, is good. Criticism is valid. Um, some, some people have said, and I don't really agree with it, that uh, people that can't do art then turn into critics um, yeah. and they can criticize. But I don't think that's really true or valid. And and that's just like, um, you know, it's, it's a defensive mechanism, which is, is unnecessary. I think it's it's okay for critic. They have they have their job, and it's usually to, to sell print, sell newspapers, or or wherever they happen to have their their critical column. And uh, some people make their um, uh, their reputation by being scathing, ruthless critics, um, and it's entertaining to read, and it's worth and it's worthwhile uh, having scathing critics out there. I, I think they have their uh, their absolute royal role to play. Uh, <laughs> don't take this as an insult, but just like vultures have their role to play, uh, what a mess the world would be if carcasses were just left to rot and not cleaned up. And yeah. so, um, not that critics are vultures, but it's they've got the role to play, and that's fine. And uh, uh, you know, let's not lose any sleep over it. That's yeah. my philosophy. Okay. Okay. I want to, I want to go to, to some of these adventures that you've had, um, which just sound incredible. Um, and it, tell me about, tell me about Grizzly Torque. I really enjoyed reading about that in your book and okay. um, how that came about and, and where you started off and where you ended up. I, I know this is going to be a, a bit of a story here, but please, I, I'd love to hear about it. Right. Uh, the uh, just to get Grizzly Torque out of the way, mm. uh, that was the name of our Land Rover that we went around the world in, which mm. is what I'm going to come to as the main story. Mm. The name Grizzly Torque came from um, a very intelligent comic strip written by Walt Kelly. Uh, I don't even know if he's still alive, called Pogo, P-O-G-O. -O. It was a, about a possum in a swamp. Uh, but it was amazingly uh, deep and intelligent. Um, your l listeners uh, may not have heard, may not be old enough to have heard of, of Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy was a, an anti-communist uh, American who uh, actually destroyed the lives of quite a few people, accusing them of being communists, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so Walt Kelly had a um, a bobcat who we called Joe Malarkey, which was a scathing thing on Joe McCarthy, um, who was a very negative influence. And so the uh, Pogo comic strip, uh, just what I said at the beginning of it, was um, seemingly uh, a comic strip, but it had a lot of 
of social commentary out there. And that's where the word grizzly. Actually, I, I've tried to find out where gr uh, grizzly torque is in the comic strip, and I can't find it. It's sort of archaeology of uh, of comics of that era, and I can't I can't find it. But at, at any rate, it's uh, the Land Rover has a lot of torque. In other words, uh, great strength in in turning the engine or turning the winch, and it was also uh, Grizzly, in other words, it was, had mud and all kinds of guck all over it a lot of the time. So Grizzly Torque applied a lot to the Land Rover. So that's where that name came from. Brilliant. And so <laughs> and so, your 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 friend comes to you, and yes. inspires yeah, my, my you. Friend, yeah. Now let let me extol. He's actually been uh, next to uh, my wife. Uh, Birgit and of course my own immediate family. He's been the the strongest influence on me, um, and we met at a, a a naturalist, a teenage naturalist club at the Royal Ontario Museum. His name is Bristol Foster, and um, he uh, he he took biology at the University of Toronto, and I took geography. Uh, I wanted to take biology. All my friends did, but. Uh, for that, you need math. Mm -hmm. And I have almost no genes for mathematics. So so he he, uh, he became a, a graduate biologist. And after he got his degree, um, he, uh, he, he uh, said, you know, I'm going to have to get out and get a real job. But I'd like to take a year off and go around the world in a Land Rover. And uh, his dad, with uh, great generosity, bought the Land Rover for Bristol. And um, the the Land Rover was a, a fantastic thing to travel in, of course, because uh, it had the winch and all that power and so on. And we had a special body, which was an ambulance body that had two beds in the back, um, uh, form, lovely foam rubber beds. And it was extremely comfortable. Uh, for sleeping in and for traveling in, a little bit bumpy to drive around on. And so um, we went around the world and we didn't try to drive all the way during certain, uh, we went, um, <laughs> I could I could draw a map here, but we, we went, um, uh, drove it around England first to see if it had any problems and drove it up into the Cairngorm Mountains in Scotland and so on. And then we put it on a, on a freighter and went down to Ghana and then drove across, I'm doing this uh, backwards for me, but across Africa, uh, virtually equatorial Africa mm -hmm. uh, from Ghana through, you know, it was in the old, good old days. Um, I think I, I, I'm hesitating whether I should even say this, but I'm a bit of a colonial, a fan of uh, colonialism um, and that's not politically correct, really. But uh, maybe partly because I was born on the 24th of May, which most Canadians know is Queen was Queen Victoria's birthday. Mm -hmm. British people don't even know this, uh, but right. it, it's, a, it's a holiday in Canada. The 24th of May is, is Victoria Day, and it was Queen Victoria's birthday. And there's no better time to have a holiday, an extra Monday, um, than the middle of May in in Canada, 
because uh, the birds are all back and the weather is lovely. We're all sick of winter and summer's about to come. <laughs> and so having a holiday in the 24th of May was a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And it maybe affected my brain always having a holiday and fireworks on my birthday. <laughs> um, and uh, at any rate, um, I, th this is why, I guess why I'm an Anglophile and the, like the Land Rover and we, we, we're pretty well English-speaking countries uh, going across Africa, except for the Belgian Congo. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of India was, in, uh, you know, Indians speak to each other in English in from one part of India to another. Mm -hmm. And so that may, that was kind of an open door being uh, traveling across uh, that part of the world. Uh, parts of the world we traveled through, you couldn't, go now you'd get shot uh parts of burma we we traveled through burma we we landed in the south of burma and drove up through the north and there's and about that time there was um um insurgencies going on and um people were getting shot all over the place uh we didn't really get shot uh i've been shot at uh, our vehicle was shot at once on a different trip in Mexico. I think they just said tar target practice shooting us at us uh, at night one time. We were camped out in the sagebrush anyway. Um, so it was quite a safe trip uh, traveling around the world. And that was one of that was one of the more important things I did with this friend, Bristol Foster, who owned that Land Rover. Phew, Amazing. I give long answers. No, no, we love long answers here. Uh, I'm all about it. Um, so, but it, just the scope of that that journey, uh, I'm trying to get my my head around it. So, to go from Ghana into Southeast Asia, so you're going all the way across Africa. Did you have to head north and cross uh, the peninsula? Or no, no, that, we went to Mombasa, oh, and okay. then put the Land Rover on a on a ship going from Mombasa up to Bombay. Fantastic, uh, and then we we carried on uh, going through India and up into Nepal and and Sikkim, and all kinds of different adventures. It, it, it's interesting. Um, I, I have to tell this story. It's not significant really in any Please. way, but on on the ship, um, we. Uh, uh, the, ship, uh, the Land Rover was in the hold of the ship, naturally, because it's, it's part of the cargo. And the mat the air mattresses in the Land Rover were more comfortable than the bunks we'd paid for uh, traveling third class on this ship. And so um, this, I think it was the second night out, uh, I, I was lying asleep uh, in the Land Rover in the hold. And there's a little tap on the window. And I looked uh, uh, out the, uh, the, the window, the Land Rover is here, and I'm lying in bed. And it was an officer. He had uh, very dark skin, uh, chocolate colored skin, but he had Aryan kind of features. He didn't have a wide nose or anything. And um, he had a, a gleaming white hat with gold braid and gold braid epaulets and so on. He was the first officer on this 2,000 passenger ship. He he uh, spoke, um, he read Sartre in the original French and, and he 
he read German and he, he, he was, I think, one of the most brilliant guys I've ever met. And we were chatting and chatting and chatting. And um, so then, uh, <laughs> uh, this is the little story I'm leading up to. He said, you must be from Southern Canada after we've been talking for 15 minutes or so. I said, I am, I'm from Toronto. It's about as far south as you can get. He said, well, as a matter of fact, I only know one other Canadian. He's from Northern Canada, he's from Ottawa. I said, Ottawa is north of Toronto, but it's definitely not Northern Canada. There's a lot of Canada yeah. north of Ottawa. He said, you know, just as almost, you might know him. I went to high school with him. <laughs> this first officer <laughs> on an Indian ship, He he's a Brahmin. He's knows one Canadian and now he's met his second, second Canadian and we went to high school together. Oh it's, it's one of the one of those small world uh, uh, stories. So, that's phenomenal. Uh, yeah, that, that's just a little. As I say, it's not of no significance, but it was. It's it's cool when those connections happen. It's um, it it's is. quite bizarre yeah. on on the other side of the world too, no less. That's yeah. <laughs> so so on this trip, you've taken um your your you know sketchbook, obviously. What tell me about your art kit in, in order to capture you know, glimpses of the landscape and wildlife as you're going, because you've, you know, there's a couple of pages there that are published that I'll, I'll put into the, uh, into the video here, but it's extraordinary looking at the way you captured that. Tell me about first, I'd love to hear about your kit, but then like how you're doing that, what you're thinking about as you're capturing, you know, the landscape, animals, people, notes, all that sort of thing. Well, well, first of all, the, the background behind it <clears throat> is, um, as as I say, it was my buddy, Bristol Foster's Land Rover. He wouldn't let me drive. He only let me drive once for a very brief time when he had Asian flu and he had a fever, a very high fever. And I drove very briefly, but otherwise he drove 100% of the time. And so here I am sitting just being a passenger and I said to myself, Bateman, you're t you're, I was giving up one year of salary as a teacher. And um, I'm just sitting here as a passenger twiddling my thumbs, seeing the rest of the world go by. My buddy was had a Bolex movie camera and he was making films. I said, um, I, I, want to, uh, I want to focus myself. And so I started doing sketches in this, uh, I, I was in French Equatorial Africa. I got uh, a couple of um, blank sort of student uh, uh, sketch books that had blank pages that I could do drawings in. And uh, my, my training as a geographer, which as I said was my degree, was to look for differences. Um, that's part of my philosophy is vive la différence. And so um, I think the differences in, in human beings and everything is is what we should be celebrating, not trying to all be the same. And so every time I saw a different house type, uh, thatched roof or tile roof or conical or what, whatever it was, or, or even uh, different tree types, different kinds of landscapes, different types of hills, different clothing um i would i would uh, do little drawings as we went and um 
I, I consider myself fairly loose and sloppy, even though my finished drawings don't or paintings don't look that way, but I can draw very quickly. Um, I learned to, uh, I, I can't, I don't think I've already said this in the interview. I, um, I took geography at university, which I think I have said, and then I, but I did life drawing. That means nudes. Mm -hmm. I drew uh, naked women uh, every Thursday night for five years while I was at university and the college of education. And, <clears throat> and uh, the teacher followed the Nicolaides method that, there's a book called uh, The Natural Way to Draw by Kimon Nicolaides. And um, you, what you do is you uh, use a ballpoint pen, so you're committed, but you sketch very loosely. What is the, what is the, the model doing? Well, it's doing this. Or what is the model doing? Well, it's doing that. <clears throat> and, and you get a very loose uh, ballpoint scribble. And then... It, you take more time and you can gradually fill in and then you can end up, uh, he, he used to give us 20 seconds to finish the drawing and he ended up um, weeks later giving us 20 minutes, but he still started being pretty complete in 20 seconds. And I'm still kind of that way. I can, I can draw very quickly. Um, and, and then you gradually solidify what is the true thing. It's kind of like a pendulum. Uh, that is not a, a clock pendulum doesn't mm -hmm. stop, but it's sort of like that gradually settles in a place. And so this gave you the the kind of that that mindset skill set to be able to capture things quickly on the fly yeah. in the field. Yeah. Extraordinary. And so did those did those sketches end up becoming bigger works later on? Were you drawing upon that back in the studio when you got back to, to your home base in Canada? Did you did you work anything up into something bigger? Uh, to be honest, no. I'd like to say yes. But to be honest, no. They became uh, what they were. Right. And they were just left like that. <laughs> but um, gradually, as my career and style evolved, and I had my Andrew Wyeth, the uh, road to Damascus and all that. Um, I relied more and more on cameras and photography. And then along came this wonderful invention. It's called an iPad. Oh, and wow. I think probably everybody who's, who's, who would, would hear this knows what an iPad is. And uh, and now, I of course, I have a camera. And, uh, and you have this little thing that goes in the camera. And then, and then you can load it into your iPad. And so uh, that. That's how I uh, get my reference now. It's fantastic. I, so I have the iPad. I've got little wires that I can hang it on the paintings that I'm working on, <clears throat> and uh, and move the iPad around to where to, close to the part that I'm working on. I've got one right in that part of the studio. I'm. We might be able to show it before the show's over. I don't know. Fantastic. Oh, look, okay. Let, let's then let's dive into into the art side of things because I, I'm dying to ask you. So you've got, you're now collecting reference, you've got your iPad. Can you take me through your process from when you have that moment where it's like, okay, I'm going to paint a moose, an elk, a bear, or, or some cranes. How does it go from that moment of your encounter to the final piece on the canvas? What's that process look like for you? Well, I I start with um, 
thumbnail sketches, I guess you could call them. I've got um, books and books of these. I started just doing them on loose paper. And then I thought, well, I'd better, I'd, I'd rather retain these and organize them. And so I've got uh, books, not a lot of books, but two or three books of these. Uh, and they're thumbnail, they're kind of the size of a playing card. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I, previously have decided this is going to be a square painting. It, it it may be three feet by three feet. So I can do something maybe three inches by three inches. I draw a little square on this blank page. And then I roughly put in the, the composition. It might be flaring like that, or it might be horizontal with little blobs on it and emptiness at the top. I, I have almost no... Um, rules of composition that I follow except for one. And that rule is never I never divide horizontally the um, rectangle of the composition into two equal halves. I, I of course, divide it horizontally all the time with a horizon. Uh, for example, one of my mo more memorable paintings is a cheetah uh, reclining. When cheetahs lie down, they, they, they are really flat. They, they kind of compress themselves. <clears throat> and so, um, and they live in this big country that I, is, I kind of call it big sky country is where cheetahs live out in the Serengeti. There's a lot of sky as <laughs> a great presence. And so I have this horizon down low. And often I use uh, my wife, Birgit, who's uh, more of an abstract artist and, and she does designs in fabric, abstract designs based on nature and fabric. And I use her as a consultant. And so I, I have this three by three foot canvas and I say, I want to do a cheetah lying down with a big sky. Hmm. So I'm not going to put the horizon in the middle. Will I put it here? She said, no, lower. Here? No, lower there yeah you could try that so i got this huge sky recommended by birgit <clears throat> and then i'm going to fit the whole cheetah into the, this little bit at the bottom you can do it and and i did it and you can see over the cheetah's shoulder going off to the right of course it's just flat serengeti plains going off to the horizon and the cheetah is is fitted into there but I, but that's the whole power of the painting is that big empty sky which is what the Serengeti is is with such a presence in the Serengeti extraordinary extraordinary and so and so you go from that that initial thumbnail that design kind of working out your layout do you do a color study from that point or do you just no, jump I don't straight do color in? Study. no no I just these are just uh, usually ballpoint uh studies Pencil is too, uh, I don't want to use the word, too sissy, but it it's too non-committal. It's just, okay. and, and it smudges easily. So I do my little studies in ballpoint pen. That's my weapon of choice. Fantastic. And so you're, I mean, I, I you've painted in both acrylic and oils, but what do you, I, I see a lot of acrylic painting across your portfolio. Do you prefer that to the oils? Yeah. Oh yeah, acrylic dries away quicker. And um, I don't know if I've already said this 
statement um, from uh, Carl Schaefer, my uh, uh, the, the teacher who taught these life drawing classes. Mm. And <clears throat> he said, in order to learn how to draw, you have to make at least 2,000 mistakes. Get busy and start making them. Don't sit there and go, uh, it might be that might be right or it might be wrong. Uh, don't get all constipated about about it. Just get in there and make it make some kind of statement and then correct it. It's it's bound to be wrong, but correct it and and until you finally get it where it's settled to your satisfaction at least. Wow. Wow. Some of these paintings, Robert, are absolutely enormous. You know, it, particularly, I mean, I'm reminded of of that painting, um, Chief, I think it was called, your bison from from yes, the Jackson Hole Museum. And so when you're when you're starting this up, so with the, with the way acrylic works, are you layering that? Like, how do you do you start off with an initial drawing? Do you transfer anything in 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 charcoal first, or do you just start making the lines and just yeah, go? I've, I've got my thumbnail of mm -hmm. Chief. Um, and I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to be um, sort of coming out of nothing, a cloud of dust, actually, because he's he's charged, <clears throat> he's charged or uh, doing a false charge at least. Um, and this is something we experienced um, uh, in Yellowstone Park, where they had these bison roving free. And I saw this big um, bull and uh, stopped the car, got out with my short telephoto to take a picture, took about five steps toward Chief, the well, I call him Chief, he didn't know his name, but to, to this bison. And by the way, it's a bison, it's not a buffalo. Right. Too many people call them buffalo. Um, <laughs> Bison are, are what Australians wash their face in, in a bison. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so That's I, couldn't, good. I couldn't help myself from saying that. No, uh, 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 buffalo have um, their horns are um, triangular. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the uh, water buffalo uh, and the cape buffalo are buffalo. Mm -hmm. No, and horns are not antlers. Antlers fall off every year, every fall. The stags have them, but the uh, the the buffalo have these big horns, and the bison mm -hmm. have this big woolly head with these rat horns that are round. And if you cut them through with a with a saw in profile, <laughs> anyway, this uh, bison was uh, took several steps toward me, and. Uh, I took, I, I decided I don't want to be uh, outside the vehicle. They they are used to seeing vehicles because it's Yellowstone Park and there's full of tourists, but they're not used to seeing human beings on foot. And this was a confrontation as far as the, the bison was concerned. And so I immediately jumped back into the vehicle and then I was okay. He didn't charge the vehicle. He could have rolled the vehicle over if he wanted to, but but wow. um, he he wasn't disturbed as long as he didn't see human feet on the ground. 
So that was the story behind that. It's 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 an amazing image, though. The final painting. I mean, it's got such a presence to it, and I, I imagine that to get that transparency of of color that you've got there to achieve that dust. I you, use you, I use a foam rubber sponge. Um, oh, this wow. is this kind of it's yellowish. It's used in packing material. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not. Uh, real sponge that you find on coral reefs, of course. It's it's just uh, packing material, foam rubber, yellowish sponge. And I <clears throat> I tear the edges so it's irregular. I don't want a square edge. And I, um, I then I paint a thin wash and then I smooth it around with a sponge and then I go pat, 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 pat. And this is also um, not the secret, but I could it's the method of getting these perfectly modulated skies. Others I've heard know how to use um, spray paint. Um, they've got there's uh, little spray paint containers that can mm -hmm. spray um, spray a modulated sky. But I I what I do I I have thin acrylic in a little uh, half a margarine tub. And uh, we'll say it's purpley gray at the top. So I've got, I've got three margarine tubs, purpley gray, kind of amber, and then um, go, uh, yellow gold here. So uh, grayish, purpley, then, then the amber, and it's all kind of wet. And I have to grab it while it's wet. I go pat, 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 and down to the bottom. And then you don't go start at the top again because your sponge has a lot of yellow paint on it. Mm -hmm. You don't want to put that up on the purple. So so then I go pat, 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 up, up to the top, maybe three times until it's all pretty well dry. Wow. Then I have to do that about five times to get an even thing because it's got overlapping issues and stuff. And that's how I can get an absolutely perfect blended sky from, say, purple gray to gold. Extraordinary. Wow, that's um. Wait, uh, just one little sure. tip. Also, I may I may have already done a hawk flying in the sky, or an owl or something, <clears throat> and you can't go pat 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 around it. Yeah. You'll see a funny looking thing in the sky, and so <clears throat> you can get stuff called frisket, which is a it's a liquid like rubber cement type of thing that you can paint on it. I suppose you could use rubber cement paint, just cover up your your image you want to preserve and not and not obliterate when you're doing this. And then when that's all dry, you just roll your fingers and you roll this rubber cement stuff off and you're left with that. If it's too big, I often have a piece of paper cut out the shape of the bird that I'm trying to keep sky color off and and uh, I can I can glue that with rubber cement the bird onto the sky but then tear it off and rub off the rubber cement anyway I think fantastic think that if they're artists they would be able to follow but it, it is it's so cool to get an insight into um how you create some of your work and from, from that point of view because I I never would have guessed it. And I, I like how you're kind of thinking as well, a little bit outside the box, coming up with creative solutions to things. 
But sticking with that painting of of Chief, you know, it's it's absolutely enormous. How how long would something like that take to to produce? How long that, that... Is, that is the one question I don't I'm not able to answer right. because I work on at least five paintings at the same time. I work Fantastic. on one for maybe twenty minutes, then I go to another one for ten minutes, then another one for an hour, and then yeah. maybe two days from now I come back to that first ten minute one, work on it for half an hour. I and I one time years ago I tried to write down exactly how long uh, it, and it, I'm no good at playing around with numbers and it seemed to be pointless anyway. So I don't know the answer, but it, it, it generally speaking, um, well, for something little, I can maybe finish it in one setting of an hour or two, but sometimes it might be um, a month or two, but it's wow. out over a long period of time. So I don't know how long it takes me to do one unless it's a very small one. So you must have become quite good at transitioning between tasks then, going from like one painting to another. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I can switch just like that. Yep. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, uh, a lot of it is, you know, quite frankly, just routine, pat, pat, pat. I mean, doesn't take any brains. Yeah. It takes brains to know that that's what your procedure is going to be. And then just go ahead. <laughs> Do it, and I can have. Uh, well, I can so sometimes be chatting on the phone while I'm doing it, uh, or have TV on, or talking wow. to Beardy or whatever. <laughs> Phenomenal. I, I don't need. I I I have heard of artists who uh, want to be alone. There's one quite famous uh, Canadian artist. I think he's passed away now, and he kept his studio door locked, even to his wife. And when, uh, when, and she would bring him lunch and she'd knock on the door and he'd open the door and take his lunch. And... <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> but uh, I'm just open to people and visitors and everything coming and going while I'm working. Yeah. That's, that's extraordinary. Okay. I think I'm somewhere in between wanting to be alone and I, I don't have the door locked, but it's closed most of the time. Maybe well, I should do be alone. thinking and writing. You do need to keep more focus and constant but not going pat 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 it's not yeah. enough to keep the mind alive wow so okay i i want to i want to change gears here a little bit because there's there's something the, the thing that i really admire about you i mean not just your fantastic art but it's the sense of of service that you have and something that seems to have been with you from earlier in your career, right up to, to the present day. And this feeling that, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and giving back to, to the world, to community. Tell me about that. How, how has this feeling of mission shaped you and shaped the art that you make and, yeah, and that, the spirit that, behind that's, it? That's, um, that's, that's true. It sounds like I'm bragging, but um, uh, I, I, quite possibly inherited it from mom and dad, uh, particularly my mom. I remember, um, as I say, I grew up in Toronto and she had, um, I, I don't know, she researched a little bit through friends or friends of friends 
some needy people that that were really poverty stricken in in the slum part of Toronto. And um, you know, she wasn't a Mother Teresa or anything like that. She didn't give her life to it. But I can remember going with her one time. She would always bring them um, a turkey dinner at Christmas, like a <clears throat> we would have our own turkey dinner, and she would get get some of the stuffing and turkey and all that bits and pieces. And this was an elderly lady who lived with her really, really elderly mother in a really sordid, you had to walk up two flights of stairs and the wallpaper was newspaper, news, old newspapers glued on the wall. I don't know why they even bothered with that. And um, I'm not sure, but I think the place probably smelled a little bit. And the, these two old ladies lived in this one room with a couple of beds in it. And uh, I remember I went with mom one time bringing food to them. So this was in, um, as I say, she was not a Mother Teresa, but she had this in her of trying to help. And um, I remember um, in my 20s, I was doing a fair amount of reading around spreading to trying to spread my um, I guess knowledge or education. I remember I plowed my way through uh, Lawrence's uh, this is TE there's TH Lawrence and TE Lawrence I think it was TE Lawrence called Seven Pillars of Wisdom. It was a huge thick book that I worked my way through of his life with Arabs. Um, but um, one of the one of the things I read was Albert Schweitzer, the great uh, humanitarian who was a, a brilliant doctor who gave up his life as a doctor and went to uh, I guess it was Belgian Congo anyway the middle of middle of Africa to to help ordinary people in the middle of Africa and um, and he uh, and so he he said. In one of the speeches, he, I, I read some of the speeches to grad students. And one of the speeches to grad students was, he, he said, I don't know any of you, but I do know one thing. The only way you will be truly happy is to be of service to others. That's the only way to, to true happiness. Not buying a whole bunch of stuff and new cars and all that. That's not the way to happiness. Being of service to others is. And maybe it's maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong. I suspect it may be right, mm -hmm. and I um, and I'm not, as I say, I'm not an Albert Schweitzer myself. But uh, but there's maybe a little piece of me in there that aspires to that. But you've done and, so you know, much. Being a service to others. You've done so much for conservation as well. Like yeah, that's my, if, if and I, you know, there's all different things I could be of service to the blind or service. Mm -hmm. But being of service to uh, to uh, critters that can't speak for themselves mm -hmm. is part of it too, and so trying to help make it uh, better for the birds and the frogs and all that, I I think is part of that same story. Wow, and so I you've been at this for a long time. I mean, you're you're ninety three. Congratulations, um, by the way. 
<laughs> yeah, the calendar says 2023. Yeah, I born 1930. <laughs> so you've seen obviously a lot of change in your lifetime. How, Robert, how do you think it's going from an environmental standpoint? The planet? Yeah. Um, I think all things considered, it's better um, than it was because it's we're, we're way more aware. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, when I was a kid, there's no such thing as uh, World, World Wildlife Fund and Sea Shepherd. Um, you know, I'm, I'm even in favor of some of these militant actions like the Sea Shepherd people do zooming around in their power boats and trying to stop um, industrial fishing. Um, and so, uh, but I think uh, all things considered, people are more aware. Uh, there are way more organizations now uh, working uh, on the right side of things. And, and I think it's in the nick of time. Um, I think we can generally speaking, stop any future extinctions. Uh, where there's a will, there's a way. Where there's no will, there's no way. And I, th I think there's a will now. And uh, and I think there's a general will on the part of most people in, certainly in the Western world um, and maybe elsewhere in the world too. That's that's fantastic. And so are you, are you thinking about optimism. this? I, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to hear that you're an optimist. I mean, that's that's awesome because I mean, one can tend to get pessimistic. I, I guess it depends on where you're putting your focus and where where you're looking. But are you are you thinking about any of this as you're painting? That that you know the painting has somehow a direct link to that. I, um, I'm, I have to admit, not really. No, when right. I'm when I'm painting, I'm either um, you know, watching a documentary on TV or listening to something on the radio or chatting with my wife or my secretary. Um, and uh, no, no, I'm a, I don't need I don't need to linger my thoughts on the w the way the world is going. It's just not an obsession. I know I know where I stand. Uh, I I have in the past, I guess, given a lot of thought to it. But it's definitely not not an obsession, and and I'm definitely, as I say, I'm not a, I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. Yeah, I I I like that um, you seem to really want to inspire kids as well, and getting kids out into nature seems to have been a, a big part of your um, your inspiration. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about that, about how. Because I, I I noticed growing up, I I was very fortunate with the house I was raised in. Um, I was raised by a, an artist, and and both my my father and my stepmother were big time conservationists. Um, and so I, I I grew up with that awareness and and that that feeling as well. But I, I noticed that it wasn't really around very much with my peers uh, in school, and so. I I feel that it's needed, and so here I I hear about you know some of the things that you've done to inspire, and so how do you feel it's important that nowadays that we we do more with kids? Maybe a bit of a leading question here, Robert. But um, how how can we inspire the next generation to 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 take this up and and to have more of a focus towards nature? 
and appreciation for I, oil, ultimately. I, yes, I totally agree with the way you're heading. I, I think it's, it's crucially important. And um, it's up against uh, very powerful odds. Uh, and one of the most powerful, and to me, one of the most dreadful things is video games. If, if, I, if I was king of the world and could uh, ban anything I want, I would ban all video games. To, to me, they have no merit. They may, I guess, train you in wiggling your thumbs quickly to catch this thing, the zooming or whatever you're trying to do with a video game. Um, but they have no merit as far as I'm concerned, but they're addictive. And uh, I, I, I'm just against them. Um, my uh, my kids and my grandkids know this. I am conscious that uh, my grandkids, I, I don't know if any of my kids, but my grandkids quite pro possibly, probably play video games as do their peers. Um, and the, the best I can do is to make it known to them I'm against them. I think they're a dumb idea. And I don't want to, I don't want to ever, and this is kind of advice to your viewers. Um, uh, I know you might play them or do something that I don't approve of, but I don't want you ever to do it in my presence. I don't want to see it. I don't want, I, and that is quite a dampener on, on their behavior. And eventually, if they grow up, which I presume they, I hope they do, um, they'll get it mm -hmm. that it's it's not a good idea, and there there are a lot of things out there that are very popular that are not a good idea, and uh, that is one of them. Of course, drugs and all that is another one, but uh, it's a different story. It's, I mean, I I found being a, a young lad that nature was just way more interesting anyway. You yeah. know, and yeah, and. But when you learn to really see, I mean, do you think that this could be something that was maybe more present in the education system? Because I'm not a fan of the education system that we have today. I'm, I'm not either, even though I was a teacher for 30 years. Yeah, uh, I, I find it irritating when people who don't who should know better say, oh, well, the answer is in education. No. Um, in fact, uh, one of the things I've been known to say is, I think we, I think legislation is more important than education, and uh, I wouldn't mind seeing rules and regulations against damaging or negative things. Mm -hmm. uh, don't count on education working. Yeah, you've had an incredible career and path. With your perspective now, looking back, would you have done anything different? Well, I, I, you know, I, of course, I'm kind of old now, and uh, I, I've, you know, I, I guess I can look back uh, on all these different steps that I, you know, I made decisions to do this and not do that, et cetera, et cetera, all through my life, and um, I, I, generally speaking, uh, looking back, I think that there they were steps that if I had the same choice, I'd do the same choice again. Um, I think they're uh, they're worthwhile. But at the time I didn't I didn't think about that and I still don't think about posterity and all that kind of stuff. It's just uh, 
I think certain things are right and should be encouraged and other things are wrong and should be discouraged. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's too simplistic, but that's the way I am. Yeah. I, I, I'm reminded of your, um, the, the prince and the, the little bit of discussion that you had in, in, in the book about printing your work. I, I mean, I get asked all the time. I I've, I've only been at this uh, 20 years <laughs> as a professional artist. And I, I kind of initially was back and forth on the whole printing issue, but um, it does seem a little bit different nowadays. I, I sometimes wish that I could have gone back to the heyday back in the seventies and eighties of when it was can, really. Can I focus that issue a little bit? Please let's, uh, let's do it. it uh, the issue is not, and I don't think ever was printing mm -hmm. uh, reproductions of art that's been done um ever since printing was invented um and uh it's you know it, it was done in in the form of etchings multiple prints were made by rembrandt and and others uh so uh that's that's not the issue the issue uh, came um well about the beginning of my career i guess right in the 70s uh, of doing reproductions, photomechanical reproductions of existing works of art that you then reproduced. And that had been done for quite a while as well. Uh, but then along came, well, I think the number one culprit was my publisher, Millpond Press in Venice, Florida. Um, they started making reproductions of existing works of art that had a life of their own out there. They made reproductions and then they signed them and numbered them. Well, traditionally, uh, traditional print techniques, these are what are called original prints. Just bear with me for a moment. For sure. There's um, original prints and there's reproduction prints and they're they're, they're, they don't bear any relationship really to each other. The, the, the only relationship they have is their multiples. Mm -hmm. So um, original prints are things like etchings where uh, an artist takes a copper plate and with wax on it and scratches through the wax and puts it in an acid bath and then dissolves the wax and then anyway, then makes etchings. <laughs> and a plate will last for maybe a hundred copies. Or you could take a silk screen and make one or two or 10 or 100 colors. Well, nobody ever does 100. And you can make unlimited numbers of silk screen prints. Um, so that that would be a, another kind. The other, another kind is, a, and this will be the last one because I may be boring some people, but maybe not, uh, is stone lith lithography. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, lithology is a study of rock, or one aspect of the study of rocks. Uh, lith lithography is taking uh, a certain kind of stone. That, um, the best ones come from France in one quarry. They're very limited, and um, they're often very thick. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got one here somewhere around the house. I don't use it really now. Um, and you do is you draw on it with a wax pen a particular wax kind of pencil or crayon it is and then um 
you wet it with wa water mm -hmm. and then you take um, a uh, oil or wax oil-based ink and you you roll it back and forth on the stone where you've done a drawing receives the ink where it's, where it's water the oil and wax doesn't mix mm -hmm. and so you just have ink where the where the drawing is then you take a piece of paper and put it on and put it in a press and then uh, bring it back out pull the paper off and you have a flop flopped version if you write if you write your name in the ink it will come up backwards people have trouble reading it um but you have a flop version of what you just drew mm -hmm. and then traditionally you you know when it's all dry you you then sign it you know i would sign just write my name robert bateman and um and you would number it because they're limited in number um and usually you, you the <laughs> I'm getting a, I'm get, getting into I'm, I'm waiting no, into it's the great. it's great uh, you the first few are called B A T not bat but bon à tirer mm -hmm. good to pull in French I failed French three times but uh, as I may have already said <laughs> but I, I know uh, a few phrases so good to pull means that you've uh, put it in the press and you've been inking and it, and it, now got it just right the way you want it to look. And once once you got the first BAT, you pull maybe five of those and you write BAT on them. Usually the um, artist keeps those or may give one or two to his friends. And then in the case of a stone litho, you can maybe get a hundred more and uh, they're signed and numbered and sold or given away, whatever. So that's that's that the happened. so that's the original print side well, of the original print, and this right. is similar with the copper plates and the etchings. Right. Um, reproductions: you take a camera, you photograph it, and you photograph it again with a um, a color, um, say a magenta piece of uh, cellophane in front. And so it shows certain it shows certain colors and not other colors. So you take several uh, exposures while it's sitting on the easel and the camera is on a tripod and doesn't move. And then you get the different colors. And so you can run the uh, the magenta, which is rosy red and and the cyan, which is blue and and yellow and black. Usually it's uh, four colors will, will do the job. Mm -hmm. But in, in my case, in some of my special prints, I then have other other touch colors just hitting it just to give it a little extra something. Yeah. But the, those are reproductions and um, of an original painting. You... So there's original prints and there's reproductions. And, and so with that i mean i i 
did experience a little bit, not much, but a little bit of backlash when I first introduced um, Prince, uh, enough to cause me, you know, just a moment of pause. With reproduction? Where, yeah, with 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 reproductions. Um, yeah. So I was I was doing a digital gicle process, and I, I'll get back to it again one day. Um, but it's it, it was interesting um, seeing the way that people perceived them. But one thing I did find was that it was it was fantastic just from a business standpoint at producing something that was a bit of supplemental income to keep everything ticking along while I was waiting mm -hmm. for the originals to sell. Um, now, I, I'm not assuming that you you had the, the same issue of having to wait for originals to sell, but did, did, do you think that the printing of your work made a difference in getting your name out there more earlier on? Well, I, I'm sure it probably did. Right. Yeah. The, the reproductions went far and wide. And uh, and they were much sought after, and I be um, some dealers were really, um, I guess you'd say, good dealers. Other would say aggressive dealers, and uh, and they 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 really marketed. There was one particularly outside of Cleveland in Mentor, Ohio, who really was a marketing giant, and uh, and pushed them and marketed them, and uh, and that that definitely spread my name and fame if that's a good thing which some people thought it was and i was i was okay with it um wasn't right. my goal as people already said but it was it was okay that's uh, wow and so and so is this something that you would um you would recommend i mean i i'd, I'd love to ask you about this i mean uh, uh, printing and, and other things let, let me let me let me set it up this way robert um, because the the world the world now has offered us so many different options for being able to get our name out there and, and be able to share our work. Uh, I'd love to know what is some advice that you would have for artists that are working today. Hey, I do have an opinion but, on that. I don't. Mm. I think an artist should, if if you're the artist, you should concentrate on your art and your work, mm -hmm. and let other people think about the marketing. Okay, that's that's a different line of line of work. Uh, line of endeavor and that's and that's a valid line of endeavor but um, I, I'll just tell you sort of the sad story of one one young guy he, he was a bit of an artist but he, he wasn't terrifically good and he'd heard about this great print marketing and everything and he did one painting and it was okay but not fabulous and he decided he could get more famous if he made reproductions of it. So out of his own pocket and his wife's pocket, he did a whole bunch of reproductions of this painting. And the company, of course, charged him for, for doing all this stuff. And he was now out of pocket by quite a bit. And the catch is nobody wanted them. Yeah. I mean, he was no good at marketing. He, di he didn't have anybody who wanted to market him. And so it almost destroyed him financially. He put out all this money and all this effort on these humdrum reproductions and he had a great big stack of useless paper with his the image that he'd done on, on one side. It it almost destroyed his life. It was just stupid. You know, if you if you're an artist, my advice is and somebody thinks they can market your work, then try to make some kind of arrangement with them. Don't you bother your pretty little head about it. So focus on the art. Yeah, that's right.
Wow. Somebody else market it. That's uh, that's good advice, and I, I tell you right now that is definitely ringing true for me because uh, you know I, I've been I've been criticized of being a little bit too scattered. I think about a lot of different things, and I got a lot of different things going on, and maybe I try to take on too much. I'd like to think I'm getting better at delegating those sorts of external tasks that aren't painting to that's other people. For, but, for um, peace of mind. If you like, if you like a helter skelter life, then go for it. But uh, uh, but as I say, I know this one example, and I'm sure there's more of people that kind of ruin their life and maybe their marriage by thinking they're going to make a buck as marketers. Robert, I, I just want to say thank you so much for your time this morning. It was a real privilege to to get to meet you and talk with you. Um, thank you so much for being on the Creative Endeavor podcast. My, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Creative Endeavor podcast. A huge shout out and thank you to Robert Bateman for joining me. Man, this was awesome. This was a real highlight for me. And will probably go down as one of my favorite podcasts that I've ever done. I mean, wow. Awesome. And again, look, I, I know I was a little nervous through this episode. I hope you'll forgive me for that. But again, when you're talking to your hero, you might get a little bit nervous too. Am I right? Now, look, if you want to hit Robert Bateman up and follow what he's doing, I'm going to link to his website in the show notes that accompany this episode. But if you enjoyed this, if you got something out of it, then please do me a huge favor. Let me know by leaving me a rating and a review and also sharing this to your social media. Share the podcast love with people. Let them know what you're listening to while you're drawing, while you're painting, while you're creating something digital in the studio, while you're doing something creative and this is inspiring you. I really hope that you'll share it with others. It just takes a minute and you'll help share the love. And again, I can't get this out to people without you sharing it. And I really thank you so much for taking the time and effort to do that. Once again, if you want to see the video version of this podcast or any other podcast, you can find that right now at Tish Academy, tish.academy. I'm going to link to that in the show notes as well. All right. This was a blast. Thanks so much for spending this time with me here in the studio. I'm going to get out of here and get back to painting. I'll see you again in another episode of The Creative Endeavor. <laughs>